session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week. To my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. This is Your Mind on Plants. And you might recall I uh, talked on Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, where he explored psychedelics and in this book how to this is your mind on plants he looks like he's going to do a deep dive or he has done a deep dive in three different plants opium caffeine and mescaline um, to see their effect on our our brains and and things of that nature so looking forward to reading his book i enjoy his writing that is this is your mind on plants michael pollan The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Kindness of Strangers by Michael E. McCullough. The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. So in this book, uh, Michael E. McCullough, he tries to give an argument or his argument for why human beings do something that is hard to explain or has been people have tried to explain but he feels unsatisfactorily uh, which is why are human beings kind to strangers to people they don't know people they won't interact with people who live across the globe why is it that we are have have we evolved to be kind to strangers and how could we explain that and so he first goes through evolutionary explanations for why we are kind to others because if you look at an individual and if we think our role uh, in a way doesn't mean it's intentional but genes want to be passed down our genetic material and so passing that down would mean i take care of myself but of course we have to reproduce so we that can make sense to take care of our young, the people that we give birth to or we uh, bring to this world. But then why would it be nice to other people? And so there is explanations for that. So, of course, I'm going to take care of myself. Why would I take care of others? And so he explores different um, areas related to this. So one is what's called kinship altruism. And that is that if I want to make sure my genes get passed on, it can make sense that not only would I want to take care of my kids, but also people who are related to me. So, um, grand, uh, you know, cousins would be one eighth related. Um, the different family members would have one fourth relationship, grandparents to grandkids. So, because of our relationship to others and because they have some of our 
genetic material, we share some of the same genetic material, it can make sense that you would take care of your family or family members. So we call that kinship altruism. And so it makes sense that you'd want to take care of your relatives, people that you know you are related with, and that we would have psychological mechanisms that would make us have care and compassion, concern for people that we are related with with, uh, related to. Now, one thing about this one fourth, one half, um, I've always heard it and it's was something that was a bit puzzling to me because they'll say you are 50% or one half related to, let's say your brother or sister. So you say I'm one half related to my brother or sister. But then if we say compare humans to chimpanzees, we say we're 99% related to chimpanzees or something like that, 98, 99%, something like that. And so it's always confusing to me, then what do we mean when we say we're 50% related to our siblings, but 98, 99% related to chimpanzees? And so there's a way of showing how related species are, but my understanding, and I don't know if I have a full satisfactory understanding of it, is that when we, what we're talking about is the difference the rare genes that you might have, essentially, there's a 50% chance that your your relatives or your siblings would have it or your parents would have it. Um, and then distant people would be less likely to have it. But I still haven't gotten really a satisfactory explanation of of that difference of what, when we say that, it always puzzled me or has puzzled me in the past few years when we say that maybe I should look into it a bit more. But so um, nonetheless, we know that we are genetically related to people that we are blood relatives with or that we're uh, in some way related to. And so because of that, we try to take care of them because their genes passing on in a way is a good chance that our genes are passing on too. And so there's ways we try to determine who is our family. Of course, if you're a parent, it could be easier, especially for mothers. There is a very certainty there. There's paternity uncertainty. Fathers can be totally certain, but they can have some idea. And then also there could be some rules like who you live with or are around when you're growing up, especially that can make you think you're related to someone. So you should be caring about them. So that's kinship altruism. There's also reciprocal altruism, which means that it's kind of like I scratch your back, you scratch my back, that I uh, do something for you knowing that you might do something back for me in return. And we know we're actually good at that. Lots of animals are as well. But humans, we're good at keeping track in a way. We like to think, don't have expectations, don't think about these things. But of course, we do. And so we it makes sense to do that because, for example, if you're hunting and when humans started to hunt and you're trying to get big game, it's likely that you won't bring anything back most hunts. And also sometimes when someone hunts, let's say, a giant uh, zebra or a giraffe, they can't eat all the meat themselves. And so it might make sense to share it anyway. And so if you share and you, it costs you less than it benefits the other person. And he talks about there's some equations to try to quantify these things or to give it, make it more conceptual. Then it would make sense because then you would get that favor possibly returned one day when you're hungry. And one of the quintessential examples of this in the animal kingdom is uh, the vampire bat. And so these vampire bats, they go hunting at night, trying to get a good amount of blood from their unsuspecting victims, thus the name vampire bats. And then they come back to the cave or where they live. And what they found is that unrelated bats would at times share with other bats who were unsuccessful in hunting. So essentially they regurgitate 
the some of the meal, so to speak, and share it with someone who didn't get any uh, in their hunt. And then they know that it's likely that person will pay back the favor. What was interesting is they found that it's not just that the person who, let's say if I gave you some, the next time it's not that I'd be coming to you saying, hey, you better pay me back. They actually found that the person who took those bats would be likely they would initiate the giving. And so it shows that we have this uh, innate sense that we want to make things right or also show that we're not a freeloader because that reputation is very important in making sure that in the future people will want to trade with us. So if I don't have something next time, you'll know me as someone reliable that you can trust that if you give it to me this time, I'll be making sure that if I have extra meat or an extra bit of blood to share with you, I will make sure to do so. So there's also that, the reciprocal altruism. And so what he explains, Michael E. McCullough, his argument is that what he thinks makes humans kind to strangers, it involves th these three types of factors, or the third one I haven't mentioned yet. The um, first one, one of them is the reciprocal or the reciprocity, that we are going to help others because we think they might be able to help us back in return. So this explains some of our helping of strangers. The other, which is in a way related, and I didn't actually mention this one, either is reputation. I alluded to it. But the fact that people see you as someone. So even if you might help someone, but that person themselves, you don't think will be able to help you back. It could make sense to be one to, to be seen as a helping and kind person so that then you yourself, when you are in need, would feel that people would want to help you back because they see you as a, having a good reputation. And the third um, reason he gives is reason or humans' ability to reason and think about these things. He thinks is a big factor. Actually, he says the bigger factor in why human beings help complete strangers. They do this thing that in an evolutionary sense can be hard to make sense of. Why would you help someone that you don't know? And so then the second half of the book is um, going through these different eras in human history, seven of them, where kindness to strangers started to show itself in different ways. And he doesn't just talk about what was going on historically. He also shares a lot of times what was happening intellectually, what was happening when it came to things like communication and technology, different things and factors that played an impact in human beings shifting their tendency to have care and concern for others. So, for example, I didn't know about uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, and I think it was 1755, there was this kind of perfect storm where there was this huge earthquake and because of that earthquake, a lot of candles were lit. Those candles uh, caused a big fire. And then because of the earthquake, there was also this these tidal waves that destroyed the city. And yeah, it was November 1st, 1755. He calls this the humanitarian Big Bang. And so he says this had a huge impact and neighboring countries actually reached out to support. And this was one of the first times we had something like this, which we see happening more and more now, where there is a disaster in some country and other nations come to help to try to support those people. And of course, the we can see that 
the three factors play a role here. The reciprocity is there, obviously. Well, if we're helping you right now in your time of need, it doesn't cost me as much as it benefits you, so it can be a good idea for me. Um, also, it can give us a reputation, if you're a person or a nation, of being good and kind. So it's likely that others will see that and they'll treat you differently. And so, of course, and then that's using some reasoning, too, of it's the good thing or right thing to do. But it's interesting looking at him showing throughout history how our way of looking at strangers changed or in ways of, first of all, if we live in a safer world or if we live in a world where there's less poverty, for example, there'll be less crime, less disease, that thinking that was shown over time, um, but also that if other countries are doing well, we are all interdependent. So as trade became more international, if other nations are not doing well, if they're dealing with disasters, they won't be able to participate in that trade with us. So it's going to cost us as well. And so, um, and later on in history and more recent history, just this idea that we should take care of others. If you can help others, it is your duty to do so. So it shifted from just a concept or something that could be nice, or let's look at the benefit to an actual feeling of duty or responsibility to help others, which we seem to have in some ways. So now after the break, I want to talk a bit more about uh, this book and some thoughts about it and also some things that are going on now. Uh, I pick this book um, there's always sad things happening around the world, but particularly today and recently we're seeing a lot of sadness in what's happening internationally, and I want to touch on those issues as well. So after the break, I'll continue a bit on the book, The Kindness of Strangers by Michael E. McCullough. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code by Michael E. McCullough. And so, as I mentioned, he says that it's reciprocity, reputation, and reason, those three R's, help explain why humans are compassionate, feel compassionate, are kind to strangers. And the way he presented the argument, I, you know, it was different than what I expected. Uh, it was much more a history of kindness to strangers, which was interesting, not what I was anticipating when I when I got the book. I thought it was going to be more presenting his argument in a way of how reasoning can be understood to make us feel the way that we do. Now, this is always a complicated uh, type of a discussion because determining what is feeling, what is reasoning, there is a lot of overlap and it's hard to completely separate them. But what I think is a good point that he makes is that what starts to become a type of moral code can be very much impacted and influenced by the ways that we think and also the things that become norms. So I think it's there's always going to be an interplay. So at times the society, culture hijacks some parts of our evolutionary psychology, the ways that we feel about certain things, but then it can be used in some other way or a new type of purpose. So the things that we think of as completely immoral or not okay can change over human history. It's not always the same thing. We at times might notice themes that are there that might stand the test of time, but what is okay or what is expected of us can change. 
And right now we might feel that it's obvious we should care about strangers or we should care about other people, but it wasn't always the case that we thought this way. Now, one thing I, I think is a big part of this is the kinship altruism, this sense of taking care of family or people like us. I think that this is obviously true that we have this tendency, but what we consider us is definitely something malleable. And also with the advent of things like technology, also just our groups expanding from what we were used to, but technology and other factors make it so that we can see people, for example, who are suffering when we couldn't before. And I think this triggers our feelings of taking care of someone close to us. And so, yes, when people are strangers or when people are seen as a threat, we might have a harder time feeling compassion to them. But I don't think that's our norm. So when we look at things like war, there has been wars in, throughout human history. But to make people hate other people and want to kill them, I don't think it's something so automatic and natural. It can happen. People do it in lots of scenarios and it can be triggered. But what we also see, especially when you look at today's day and age, is when we try to send people to war, or when we look at recent wars, the other side has to be made to seem like some kind of threat or dehumanized to some horrible way in order to make it that people would want to kill strangers, actually. So here we're talking about the kindness of strangers, but to want to kill a stranger, there is some also psychological machinery there, but I don't think it means we always want to kill or hurt other people, and we only want to help people that we see like us, and what we consider us is also malleable and something that can change. And so also when I'm thinking of the war scenario, we see that there's been research looking at how accurate people shoot at one another, which is uh, obviously literally life and death type of a thing, but they found that it seems that people miss each other more, and there's been some research in different wars showing that people miss, you would think that they'd have better aim than they show, and it seems likely that there is some aversion to actually killing someone else, killing the other person. And there's stories of this throughout history of wars even stopping, for example, I think it was World War II, um, or maybe it was World War I, during Christmas for several days, and that happened in different areas. Um, there's also, I think it was in the American Revolution or Civil War, lots of evidence that lots of guns and muskets were not even fired, so they didn't even take the shot they had. Um, a la Alexander Hamilton, they did throw away their shot. Um, people seem to have a hard time killing each other also. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do horrific things to one another, but I think the concept that we want to definitely just attack and kill anything that's not like us, I don't think that's true either. I think it can be triggered by threat and by different types of situational factors, but we can also have kindness towards others and our mirror neurons that are part of the compassion network, we could say, they get triggered when we see someone suffering, uh, even if they are different from us in whatever way you think is different. So that was a way that I wouldn't say fully disagreed, but I think there was some nuance that um, I, I saw in the arguments that might have made it more complete to me. But I did think that um, 
Michael McCullough did a very good job of explaining and showing the history of how humans have become more compassionate, even in a way how when we look at strangers, what we consider strangers has changed over time, has become something different. Maybe someone from a neighboring village could have seemed like a stranger, but now for many people, no matter where someone is on the globe, they don't seem like a stranger to them anymore. And it might seem hard for us to remember what that must be like or to think of what people used to think before. But imagine, uh, you know, before if someone thought of someone on the other side of the world, it's like if I told you there's these creatures on some planet in another galaxy, do you want to help those beings? And it's an interesting type of dilemma and one we might face at some point in the future probably not anytime soon, but it could be at some point in the future, would you want to help these other creatures? And I think at some level, there is going to be this mindset of the morality, which we already are seeing happening on earth, of caring for all living beings and movements towards veganism. We're just being more aware of how we're hurting animals and other living beings, I think is part of that, where we recognize that we can be kinder to these other beings, and we can survive without um, hurting them. So it would make sense to do so. I think at some point in our history, if if we're able to survive that long, we will have an interplanetary, intergalactic type of way of looking at these issues as well. Of course, this is all speculation, but I think it does raise these questions of who are we supposed to take care of? If it's not just people like in your family and if you whatever you consider like you and you start to expand that us feeling to all humans and then all living beings what else would it be you know there's uh, evidence that some humans many humans have some neanderthal blood or genes in them and so sometimes it makes me even think of okay what would be the percentage if we did find let's say that some people what we considered people human beings turned out to be more neanderthal than humans. Would you stop caring about them? Should we stop caring about them or kill them or attack them? Probably not. Uh, I don't think most people would think that. And so it does make us think, well, then what makes it different from that and an animal if you're saying there are different species than, than us? So, uh, you know, so some things to consider when we're looking at understanding our kindness, our capacity for kindness. I think one of the main issues I mentioned threat is the more we feel taken care of and okay, the less we feel that others are threatening and the more we want to take care of them. And so we see that even in the ways we use reciprocal altruism that, uh, you know, we have to be giving them in a way that hurts us less than it helps them. That makes it make sense. But I think overall, as any being, but human beings, if we are taken care of, if you feel that you have enough, you won't be threatened by helping others. And I think we've advanced where we can take care of all people on this planet. And I think that's why this kindness of strangers does make sense, but we haven't achieved it yet. And so I did want to um, change gears and... You know, when I pick the books of the week, I obviously have to buy them or get them ready weeks in advance. And so I don't always know which books I'm going to do at what time based on trying to switch the topics up in some degree. Sometimes I actually want to follow up on another topic. But this book I'd bought in several weeks ago, and then I thought this last week would be a good one. And sadly, there's never a time when there aren't humanitarian 
crises going on around the world. So in that way, it would almost always sadly be timely to talk about the kindness of strangers and the need for more kindness towards strangers. But today in this past week, um, but especially what you've been seeing these images today in Afghanistan have just been heartbreaking. And so before that, recently I had posted about um, COVID in Iran and how bad things are where I think it's every two minutes someone is dying. I don't know if that number and statistic still holds, but it's just been horrible. And I've heard from some people, even people have messaged me um, about it. People that are there, people that I've talked to that know people there. It's just been horrific and it's very sad. And we're hoping the situation can get better there. I think more than likely the way for that to happen is the vaccine, which I know the access there has just been horrific. And so it's heartbreaking to see what's happening there. And so that was something that I was reading about before, but especially last week was much more in the public eye as things were getting even worse. But then now with the, the situation if in Afghanistan with the U.S. withdrawing its troops and the Taliban taking over, uh, the things I'm reading and the images I'm seeing, and I'm definitely not a news source, so I don't want to report too much on the news itself, and I'm sure you're seeing it yourself, but it's just been uh, incredibly painful to watch and to read reports, things like students turning up to schools and having to be turned away because the schools are closing and also teachers saying goodbye to the girls because they don't know, first of all, they wouldn't be able to come back to school, but what's going to happen to them? And we're things like kids as young as 12, girls as young as 12 being taken in to be I guess you can call it basically slaves, but marrying um, adults, just horrific things are, are happening. And of course, these type of situations are much more complex to say there's an easy solution. I think clearly actually what we saw is the U.S. and allies thought it would be an easy solution to go there now 20 years ago and just fix the situation or fix the problem. And clearly they were not able to do that. But I think it is very irresponsible beyond belief for the U.S. to then withdraw troops and say, well, whatever's happening there is happening when you were there for 20 years, creating more problems, not fixing things, if anything, letting things fester, and then just withdrawing without any type of smooth transition that is necessary. And as I said, I definitely don't have solutions. I don't know what it would take, and I don't know all the complexities of what happened with the government there and what was going on, because I've heard some people talk about that. But what we're seeing, to me, is not something we can ignore. It's not something that we cannot do something about. And so I know people are posting about it, and sometimes you don't know, does that make any difference? I don't know. You can also do things like write to, uh, in, in the United States, members of the government, Congress, that can have some impact when they see what people are feeling and what they want to do. So I hope you will look uh, online. Yes, post something, but see what else you can do. Even for myself, I posted something about Iran and COVID last week, trying to bring attention, which is really the least I could do, and it really was. But there's always more we can do, even if you feel like it's not much. And I hope we all will take some type of action to see what we can do happen because it's just been unbelievable. People trying to just get on a plane that's leaving, forcing their way in if they can, because they know what's waiting for them. 
it's just horrific beyond anything imaginable what is happening there and so i hope you will take the time you know when we talk about this kindness of strangers as i was saying i think it's evidence that we care about others when it's so hard for us to watch the videos of what's happening there now maybe like me you might be middle eastern so you think that makes some connection but i don't think that's what it is i think it's just seeing people suffering in a way and the fear and the terror of what they are facing and what they are going to continue to face which is not okay to me is just more evidence that we do care about what might seem like strangers i'm actually very grateful that we have this type of mental mechanisms or machinery whatever you want to call it that makes us care but we also unfortunately have a lot of mental machinery that allows us to deny facing something or thinking about something whether it's something like the fact that we're all going to die and we prevent thinking about that because it's hard to sometimes live if you are too focused on death or something like the suffering of people around the world we can care when we see it but we're also very good at not caring or trying not to see it if we can or justifying it in some way so that we don't care because when we look at a problem and it seems too big to solve it feels too big to care about because I'm going to get upset or sad and not be able to do anything about it. And so it doesn't mean we need to just immerse ourselves in watching the sad images over and over again, but we should stay informed of what is going on, uh, as heartbreaking as it is, and even more so because it's heartbreaking and because it's horrific and a violation of all sorts of human rights. And because of that, do something about it. So I'm sure most of you are, many of you are already doing something, seeing how you can get involved. The sad thing is right now, Afghanistan is in the news, but there are people suffering all over the world in other ways as well. And I hope we won't be overwhelmed by the amount of suffering, but instead we'll be overwhelmed by the number of people who do care and would want to do something if they knew it could make a difference. And I do still very much have hope for humanity and believe that we can eliminate the unnecessary suffering that we see in the world that we continue to see am i optimistic it's possible but i really do see the capacity is definitely there it's just that we have not achieved executing it to make it happen but so my heart breaks and aches for the people of afghanistan and i do hope america and the international community does respond because it is our responsibility as American country, as, as United States military, to do something about it when we have contributed to creating a problem. We can't just cut and run and let people suffer behind us. So I hope something will be done, and I hope all of us will do whatever it is that we can to help. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. <music> back it's hard to change gears um, after talking about the horrific and very sad situation in Afghanistan and as I said I hope people will do something but I do want to or I do have to change gears talk about something else um, related to the book that I was talking about today and it does relate to also what we do or about situations around the world but in the kindness of strangers Michael E. McCullough talked about why humans are kind or his understanding and explanation of why human beings are kind to strangers 
And he gave his three R's, reciprocity, reputation, and reason. And so I wanted to talk a bit about the reputation part of that equation and looking at things that we do currently, because we're always our concern about our reputation, and reputation is a big part of what motivates us. Now, we all like to think, I don't care what anyone thinks, I don't do things so that other people uh, like me or don't like me, I, I think for myself. And that might be true to a degree, but we are all very much impacted by why, what other people think of us and how they see us as a person. And even when we look at some aspects of developing who we are, we recognize that a lot of times we're not so concerned about being something, let's say kind, nice, um, generous, outgoing, whatever it might be. We might not care so much if we actually are those things, but we care about what people think of us. And reputation always matters as far as survival throughout history. So we still have that within us that we are aware of how we look to others. Am I a good person? Someone you would want to help, to work with, to um, even marry or marry into the family. Some cultures might be more aware of these things than others, but we all care. And what I wanted to talk about now, I did mention posting things on social media, and I think that can be very, very helpful to bring about attention to something. If everyone is posting about something, it does bring more attention to it. It doesn't solve the problems at all, but it can be a starting point or sometimes there isn't much else someone can do about a certain type of situation, especially if it's far away, than to post or reach out to people that might be able to have a tangible impact on what is going on. But what I wanted to talk about with the reputation piece is something that we see in social media, which is almost directly related to these words of reputation, which is things like virtue signaling. So these are obviously complex issues, and I never look at things from one lens or try not to look at them from one lens. But when people are posting things on social media or, for example, we'll see things like cancel culture, where if someone um, makes a comment or it's found that they even made a comment from years ago and they might experience a huge backlash and people want to make them lose their job or career, reputation, all sorts of things. Some of what I think is happening is virtue signaling is part of this reputation framework of trying to look like a good person. So if we are looking at something like racism in the United States, of course, it is a very serious and very real problem. It's something that we have a lot of work yet to do. And so people know this. And so because of that, even more, there is a sense that if I want to show myself as not racist, so I am part of the solution, not part of this problem, then if I attack anyone for being racist, even slightly racist, that shows how much I am part of the solution. Or even if I show that I'm so angered by a small or something that might be hard to even construe as racism, that shows how good I am. I am so anti-racism that even something that other people might think is barely racist or maybe not even racist, I'm reacting so strongly to it because look how good I am. And I think it's we can make sense of it. Not that I'm saying it makes sense to do that, but I can make sense of it. 
But I think it's very unfortunate for a few reasons. One is that, well, people are being punished at times too much for their, if you want to call them crimes or wrongdoing, sometimes maybe not even a wrongdoing, but the punishments are not fitting the crime, which is not good. And then because of that, because the punishments are not fitting the crime and because people are showing outrage over things that aren't that outrageous at times, it takes away from the actual mission that it seems like these people are saying they want to achieve, which is, let's say, fighting something like racism. Because if you punish people too hard for things they're doing, it's going to make the people that are not so much on your side even more against you. And then also, if you put the spotlight on these types of things, it actually takes away some of the spotlight that goes on actual problems that are happening. So if someone steals $1, And I say we should hold 50 press conferences, talk about how wrong it was that this person stole one dollar and I'm crying about it and outraged about it. All that media attention, human attention on that issue is going to take away from some of the real theft that's happening that has a huge impact on the world or on other people or on many people. And so similarly, if we put so much of an emphasis on, oh, this person said something slightly wrong 15 years ago. Well, then we take away from the actual things that are still being said and done and part of the system that are hurtful and harmful. And it will make people dismiss you altogether when you say there's racism because they say, oh, look, this is the stuff they're talking about. It's not even really anything when the problem actually is real. So it does defeat the purpose. And to me, oftentimes, we always have to look at our intentions with everything and really take a hard look at ourselves when it comes to looking at intentions, especially when something is public, as most things are, and something like social media, it's social. That's really the main part of it is that you're putting it out there. It's not just something you want to think for yourself. And so when we take some kind of action like that, we do want to be very mindful and aware and reflective on what am I doing here? If I am reacting in this way so strongly, let me try to look at it. And even if we're courageous enough, let me look at it from the opposite perspective. Could what I'm saying be too much or too extreme? Or am I overreacting? Just like we hopefully do even in our lives and our relationships and how we deal with people. But what might be driving that? And I think it's unfortunate that this is happening. And we see it happening on on both sides in different ways that we try to show how much we believe in something by overreacting. So on the left, we are seeing this happening with things like cancel culture, where to show you how against racism I am, for example, I'm going to react to the smallest slight, even bigger than you do to something bigger. Um, or even with the Me Too movement, which is also a good example. There, It's a very real thing. It's a very real problem that men treat women in certain ways. Men in positions of powers have abused it, continue to abuse it, using these types of methods of coercion and pressure to make women feel uncomfortable, both in harassment but also in assault or also in ways of feeling they have to act in a certain way or take certain actions in order to maybe maintain their job or their positions, things like that. So it's a very real thing. But then people can go to the extreme and say that even if someone says something, let's say, that might not be exactly 
um, in tone with what we're talking about or what we're trying to promote. We have to attack them, and they're just as bad as people committing horrific actions. And again, it takes away. People will then say, oh, the Me Too movement, it's going too far or it's not... You know, oh, it's just like they're making something out of nothing because there are some people that make something out of nothing situations, but that takes a spotlight away from the real situations that are definitely there. And so that's happening on the left. On the right, you'll see things like, for example, if you're pro-gun, then anything that's about restricting guns in any way, you have to react as if it's like taking away your most basic freedom or basic human right to just put any kind of even restriction on one aspect of guns. Or I remember before when they would, you know, terrorism and you'd hear about Guantanamo Bay and it's like, okay, I want to make Guantanamo Bay twice as big. I'm going to make Guantanamo Bay three times as big. Or when we deal with terrorists, we should torture them so bad. And it's a show I hate terrorists so much that I want to torture them more than you want to torture them, which is another type of virtue signaling in a different way. Uh, I remember the book I talked about last year by Ali Sufan, The Black Banners, where he was uh, for, I think for the FBI or CIA, I can't remember now, but interrogating terrorists and he didn't torture and he was very against it. And he showed how actually harmful the torture was. And when he communicated with terrorists and had to interrogate them, he built, he built rapport and he tried to understand them better and was able to get more information out of them. So it wasn't that Ali Sufan loved the terrorists so much and didn't have um, hatred for what they were doing, that he was treating them in this way. It was actually because he knew it would get more intelligible information to then actually help save lives and prevent more damage and more deaths. So he was using his reason and not just focusing on maybe like a reputational kind of sign of how much you hate certain people to show how patriotic you are or how American you are, but using his reasoning to recognize if I want to make the situation better, I should act in this way. It has nothing to do with how much you like or dislike the terrorists. He was doing it out of like and love for country and people and innocent individuals to save their lives. And so unfortunately, we do see this happening. And maybe with some of what I'm talking about, the cancel culture, that part of it is more on the left. But I think people are doing it on both sides as things have gotten even more polarized politically and as social media contributes to that both by making things more polarized and exposing to people to things that are more polarized and by selling things like outrage. So if you just say, I didn't like this a little bit, that's not going to get a lot of attention. But if you say, I hated this and it drives you mad and you react in a really strong way, you're more likely to get attention, unfortunately, even if it's um, an unreasonable type of reaction, it'll get even more of a, a reaction online where we're seeing that people are going more and more towards this type of virtue signaling, which we can understand in the framework of this book, The Kindness of Strangers by Michael McCullough is a type of reputational type of a thing. If people see me as whether it's compassionate or they see me as I'm so moral or I'm so anti-racism or I'm so pro-America or whatever it might be, then without even realizing it, we're doing that to get some type of reputational benefits. And so these things happen very quickly and unconsciously. I don't think people are sitting there thinking, okay, if I do this, people will see me as this way, so I'm going to exactly do it this way. Sometimes it might be that methodical, but very often it's happening unconsciously and automatically, which is why we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what am I doing here? 
What's my intention? Why am I reacting so strongly? And once things become kind of like a norm, that if you're this kind of a person, you react in this way, people can feel that pressure that if I show anything different from that, I don't really care or people will think I don't care. But I do hope we'll all take a step back to try to be more reasonable and realistic. We'll all take a step back and look at our intentions as we should do with everything we're doing. But when you're posting things online and when you're attacking someone online for something they've done or said, to really think about what is driving me. Am I really doing this because I'm this outraged about it? Can I approach this differently? And is what I'm doing actually contributing in some way? I think, unfortunately, people think that the more outrage they get, the more it's helping. But oftentimes it backfires because people see that and they think, well, if you're reacting that much about something small, there probably isn't a real problem where something like racism, as I mentioned, is a huge problem still in the United States. But sometimes people are actually doing counterproductive work when they overreact to things that aren't that big of a deal. And that takes the tension away from the real work that might involve something very real that actually has to be looked at. So as I was reading this book, The Kindness of Strangers by Michael McCullough, it became very clear to me looking at something like people's reactions online, um, in particular cancel culture and the ways people call out others for being, let's say, racist, at times has to do with reputational type of things that we think benefit us, but actually might hurt the cause and might be actually selfish rather than selfless or helping. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.